invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, as we continue in our verse-by-verse study of this epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church. And this morning will be part one of a two-part message that will take us from verse 4 to the end of verse 13. Um, This is one consistent thought of, of the Apostle Paul. It's one consistent theme, and so it, it cannot really be logically divided into two sermons, but because of all that it contains, I think it wise to, to divide it into two sermons. So this morning I'm going to preach to you Liberty and Love, Part 1, and next week will be Part 2. Uh, so this morning we are going to just be considering verses 4 through 8, verses 4 through 8, But before I read the text, verses 4 through 8, I want to go ahead and and give you the outline for the rest of the chapter, just so that you can kind of see where we're going, kind of give you a road map, so that you can see where we're going, and then I'll read verses 4 through 8. From verses 4 to 6, we see in this text a mutual confession, a mutual confession. And then in verse 7, we see a mindful consideration. Verse 8, we see a meaningless commendation. Verses 9 through 12, we see a mature caution. And then in verse 13, we see a mandated consequence. So again, this is one logical thought of the Apostle Paul. Uh, But if I were to preach this whole text in one message, I would have to leave out some things that I really don't want to leave out. So we're going to break this down uh, into two parts and we're going to look at verses 4 to 8 today. So let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. These are the words of God. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, As there be God's many and Lord's many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some, with conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. But their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Chapter 8 is a chapter dealing with knowledge, Christian liberty, and love. A proper relationship between these three things is essential for long-term, fruitful, charitable fellowship between believers and especially between church members. Because even though we are all one in the Lord and we all share a mutual submission to the Word of God as our ultimate authority, we must all recognize that unity is not uniformity. God has ordained that there be blessed diversity in the church because none of us have obtained an ultimate and infallible knowledge. These differences among church members do not determine our maturity. Rather, what we do with those differences determines how mature we are in Christ. The question is not, will we have differences? But what will we do when those differences make themselves known? Churches that stifle all theological and practical differences and attempt to make their membership look like it was formed with a cookie cutter show symptoms of legalness, legalism and shallowness. The Bible says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, not conformity and pressure and legalism. We do not want our church membership to look like it was formed with a cookie cutter, as if we all just came from the same piece of dough and we were just cut out to be spitting images of one another. And when I say look like, I I certainly don't just mean externally, but our culture and our characteristics and our particular convictions and positions will not all be the same. 
until the Lord returns, there will never be complete agreement between all of his people. Therefore, we must have a proper relationship between our knowledge, our liberty, and our love. Sometimes we will agree on the same theological truth, but come to a different conclusion on how that truth is to be lived out. Other times, we will wind up at the same practical conclusion, but have a different theological framework that led us there. It is true that in some instances, our differences may be so glaring and so significant that we cannot effectively function together in the same church. It may be best for us at times to part ways and to serve the Lord in different places, but that is never to be the most desired option. We should desire a liberty that is preceded by and followed by and characterized by an all-encompassing Christian love that allows us to work together for the gospel in the same assembly. In order for this to happen, we must love our brothers and sisters more than we love our own knowledge. And we must value one another above our own opinions and our own convictions. And we must strive to have a Christ-like love for one another that does not allow our differences to hinder our fellowship. Some pride themselves, and some churches pride themselves in being very strict, theologically and practically. They have long lists of rules and practices and traditions that their church members follow and they they look at it as a badge of honor that they are all uh, of one mind and one accord on so many things. But brothers and sisters, what really requires the most maturity is that having a list to which we all conform and as long as we check the boxes we have peace and harmony or is it a church in which there are differences of opinion and differences of conviction, but because of our love for one another and our desire to glorify Christ above ourselves, we find a way to be harmonious. I believe that is true maturity in Christ. This is the grand principle that Paul is driving home to the Corinthians. And 2,000 years later, brothers and sisters, it is still the principle that we need to follow today. Verses 1 through 3, Paul dealt directly with knowledge and love. And in verses 4 through 13, he focuses on liberty and love. So let us begin in verse number 4. Liberty and love. I want you to see first the mutual confession. The mutual confession. The style of the Apostle Paul is often to present his theological framework and then establish practical applications. We see him structuring many letters that way, such as the book of Ephesians, where the first three chapters are all just this doctrinal epilogue, and then the last three chapters are practical applications of what he has taught already in the first three chapters. 1 Corinthians is not organized that way, uh, but yet he still employs that style in certain portions, and he's doing that here in verses 4 through 13. This is what he will do as he will lay out the theological framework for this issue of meat sacrificed to idols. And then he will begin to talk practically about the issue. Now, it is true that verses 4 through 6 are not the main point. They're, they're not the emphasis of this passage. So I'm going to spend a lot of time on them. And uh, you, you might be able to accuse me uh, of, of not rightly preaching the text, of missing the main point of the text. And I struggled with that even in preparation. The point of this passage is ultimately a proper use of Christian liberty. The point of this passage is not, first and foremost, the doctrine of God. Because that's what verses 4 through 6 are all about. But because these verses contain such a rich truth, they're so weighty and they're so meaty, I didn't want to limit our consideration of them. I didn't want to just glance over them. And so I've divided this section into two messages so we can spend some time here in verses 4 through 6. And I'm giving these verses the heading of the mutual confession because this was the view of the Corinthians and Paul affirms his agreement with that view. Paul is not correcting a false belief. 
he is affirming what the Corinthians believed. He's saying, you're right about, about this, and that's significant for us. He does this in no uncertain terms to demonstrate that the heart of the issue at hand is not doctrine itself, but what we as Christians do with doctrine. Stronger brothers were saying, we have this doctrine that allows us to partake of the meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, I don't disagree with your doctrine, but I do disagree with some of the ways you are using your doctrine. Are we going to use doctrine to beat down and berate and lord over our brothers and sisters? Are we going to use doctrine as something that boosts our own pride and causes us to think that we are better than? Are we going to use our doctrine to shun and shut off other believers? Or are we going to use doctrine to build one another up and form bonds of unity? Unity cannot be empty. In other words, unity must be centered around the truth. We can only have unity if, it's, if we're unified in the truth. That should be the goal of sound doctrine, to unify us, to strengthen us. So that's what we'll see as we go through this text. But before we do so, I want us to kind of camp out in verses 4 through 6 and consider this mutual confession and unpack it. So Paul says in verse 4, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things sacrificed, or that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. He restates the topic from verse 1. Verses 1 through 3 were somewhat parenthetical as he discussed this relationship of knowledge and love. Now he's returning back to the central issue, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. And he says, he starts by saying, we know that. We know. By saying this, Paul aligns his position with the Corinthian position. He says, we know, not I know or you know, but we know. It's a mutual confession. And there are two pillars to this confession. Notice the grammatical structure of verses 4 through 6. The first pillar is a statement about idols, and the second is a statement about God. He makes both statements in verse 4. He makes the statements, and then he unpacks the first statement in verse 5, and then he unpacks the second statement in verse 6, and he uses the first statement to unpack the second statement. So there's so much going on here, grammatically uh, and theologically, that I really wanted us to to get this. As we progress through these verses, we will notice a very deliberate, systematic expression of this doctrine. So, pillar number one of this confession, look at verse four. Pillar number one, we know that, pillar number one, an idol is nothing in the world. And pillar number two, there is none other God but one. This confession begins with the first pillar, which is a negation of idols. A negation of idols. The Christian position on idolatry is not that Jehovah is a God or that maybe Jehovah is the supreme God, but that there are also other gods and goddesses that are also worthy of our worship. That is not the Christian position. The Christian position on idolatry is that Jehovah alone is God and idols are nothing. They are nothing. The, the spiritual battle is not a battle between God and the devil, as if the devil had some uh, true entity within himself where he opposed God. But as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. Idols are non-existent, empty, vain, non-entities. They have no validity. They have no substance. They have no worth. They have no power. They have no truth. They are fictional, powerless, worthless, and unreal. The Christian religion is not like the pagan religions that admit the existence of other gods. Many pagan religions, I'm thinking of Roman mythology, Greek mythology, they would believe in their gods, Zeus and Thor and the other gods, Nordic god, but they would believe in these gods, but they would also believe that other religions existed with other real gods. Do you remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 23 when Israel had badly defeated the Syrians in the hills of Samaria and the Syrian says, well, they have their mountain gods helping them and their mountain gods are stronger than our gods, 
maybe if we fought them in the plane, we'd win. Because then their mountain gods wouldn't be helping them. Well, we chuckle at that, but that is how the pagans viewed deity. Let me just say, what a low, pathetic view of your God, if that is how you see him. Such a feeble, inept, powerless God is not worthy of service or worship. The Christian confession is not that Jehovah is one of the gods, or even the highest, most powerful God, but it is that Jehovah is God alone, and the idols are nothing. Paul continues on, and he says, For though there be that are called gods, notice in verse 5, Though there be that are called gods, the, the pagans have their myriads of idols, but notice Paul says here, they are so-called gods. They are called gods. They're not gods. They're called gods. Whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many. Paul wants to cover all the bases here. He, he doesn't want to leave out any so-called god. Let me, let me see if I can give you a translation in the common vernacular of verse 5. Paul is saying, look, I don't care what you call it, whether it's in heaven, whether it's on earth, whether it's in the sea, whether it carries a trident, whether it has a hammer, whether it's in the underworld, whether it's living on Mount Olympus, wherever it is. I don't care what kind of power you ascribe to it, what you think it can do for you. I don't care what its name is. I don't care how you bow down to it or how you pray to it or how you burn incense before it. It is a vain and empty idol. It does not exist. That's what he's saying in verse 5. The, the pagans have their myriads of gods, but they are false gods. This Christian confession defies the deities of Greek and Roman mythology. It defies the occult Eastern mystic religions. It defies the millions of Hindu gods and goddesses. It defies the false god of Islam. We do not worship the same god. Amen. They do not worship the god of Abraham. Because the god of Abraham is the Lord Jesus Christ. It defies the icons and relics and saints of the Roman Catholic Church. And it defies anyone and anything that would dare encroach upon the worship of service, and fidelity commanded by Jehovah, who is God alone. That is the Christian statement on idolatry. And then Paul moves on to unpack the second pillar of this confession in verse 6. Notice he says in verse 6, but to us. So he's, he's drawing a contrast between the pagans and the Christians, between the unbeliever and the Bible believer. It draws a sharp distinction between biblical Christianity and all false religion. And by the way, this is not a voice of relativism. It's not as if Paul is saying, well, this is for us. You know, uh, for, for me, Jesus is my God, and that's what works for me. And it, I, I feel really great being a Christian, but you know, if you want to be something else, you do you. That's not what Paul is saying here when he says, but to us. The us are those who believe the Bible and worship the true and living God. That's who the us are. He's reminding the Corinthians, you're not pagan idolaters anymore. That's not who you are anymore. You are a Christian now. God has called you out of darkness into the truth of who He is. Now some may claim that such an abrupt and direct denial of all other gods and an affirmation that the God of the Bible is the only true God is a bit narrow-minded or, or a bit bigoted. Who am I to stand here before you and say that the idols are nothing and if you aren't worshiping the God of the Bible, if you aren't worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are worshiping a lie. You are living in darkness. Isn't that a bit inconsiderate and unloving of me? If worshiping some other God makes you happy, then who am I to say you're wrong? 
If, if you worship a, another God and yeah, that you, you find fulfillment in your life, if, if you know someone who is not a Christian and they worship some other God or they have some distorted view of Jesus, but yet you know they're a pretty good person, who am I to say they're wrong? Let me submit this to you. If this is true, which it is, and if Paul is right, which he is, then it doesn't matter how we feel about it. If the God of the Bible is the only true and living God, which he is, then there could not possibly be anything more loving than to proclaim him as such and to urge and plead with idolaters to forsake their non-existent gods and come to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Is that narrow-minded? Well, I suppose it's as narrow-minded as the Bible. But is that unloving? Absolutely not. If there's a, 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 tra- a cargo train heading down the tracks and everybody inside is eating and drinking and having a grand time and you're standing on the outside and you see that the, the, tr- the tracks go over a bridge and the bridge has collapsed and they're all going to plummet to their death, it's not unloving to say, get off the train. It would be unloving to stand and say nothing while they plummet to their death. Our hearts should be broken when sinners cling to their empty idols instead of coming to God, the true and living God of the Bible. That's pillar number one. Notice pillar number two. We we talked about idols. Now he's moving on to the truth, the, the negative and the positive. He says, verse six, but to us there is but one God. The Christian confession of the true God begins with a robust monotheism. Mono meaning one, theism meaning God. Christians have always affirmed there is one God and one God only. This has always been a cardinal distinction of Christianity. And this is also what what made Israel so unique among their pagan neighbors. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Shema proclaimed that to Israel. made them different than all of the other pagans out there. I am He. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Isaiah 43, verse 10. I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God beside me. Isaiah 45, 5. And any group, I don't care if they're professing to be Christian, any group, Mormons included, especially included, that profess that the Lord Jehovah is one of the many gods and that by your obedience you can uh, attain to deity yourself, it's not Christianity. There is but one God. Notice how this one God reveals himself to us. This one God subsists in the three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You do not have to fully theologically comprehend that, but you do need to fully believe that. Notice it says in verse 6, there is one God, the Father. The Father is the first person of the Trinity. But this is more than just a theological affirmation of the Trinity. Here Paul is saying that this one true God is not a despotic, ambivalent tyrant in the sky to the Christian. This one God is your Father. He is your Father. He loves you as His child. He has adopted you into His family. The God of Islam has no love or affection. To be a Muslim literally means to be one who submits. That's what that religion is all about, just submitting to commands. But the Christian religion, Christianity, is is so much deeper than that. The foundation for your communion with God and your relationship with God is not your obedience to His commands, but the fact that He is your Father. Father. 
of whom are all things and we in Him. This God, who is the Father of those who love Him, is also the architect of the universe. He's the architect of the universe. Do you see what Paul is doing here in this expression? He speaks of the false gods in heaven or on earth in verse 5. Notice in verse 5 he says, there's, there's many gods and many false lords. They're on heaven, they're on earth. And then in verse 6 he says, our God, the Father of those who love Him, He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. So far above and transcendent and removed from idols is our God. This world and everything in it and the skies above us and the stars and the celestial galaxies, the oceans, the rocks, the canyons, the craters, they were all created by Him for His honor and glory. The Bible says all things are of Him. And God's creating of all things for His glory includes you. That is why you are here upon this earth. You are here for the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We are experiencing an identity crisis in our culture today. And so many are looking for the meaning of life. And what is my purpose? The Bible tells you what your purpose is. It is to glorify God. And you will go on living with no meaning and no purpose until you realize why He has made you. We exist because of Him and for Him. God has created you for His glory that through your life, His name might be magnified. What a privilege that is, brothers and sisters, that somehow, by His grace, our lives can be a conduit through which He is made known in the world. That unbelievers that don't yet know our God can see your life, the way you live, the way you talk, the way you think, the way you love, and they can see something of the character of the God who created you in you. That should be your desire this morning, that others can look at you and see God. That is why He has made us. Not so that we would worship vain idols and waste our lives on lies and deception. So we would come to know Him as our Father and come to love Him, come to worship Him, the only true and living God. You, you have such a privilege having this God as your Father. Uh, the story was told, I believe it was when Kennedy was in the White House and there was a reporter or someone who was trying to come and visit the White House and he was not allowed entry into the White House. And uh, a young boy was playing out behind the White House. And he saw this reporter. And he says to the reporter, what, 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 what are you trying to do? And he says, uh, I'm trying to, to meet the president. And the little boy says, come and follow me. And the little boy takes him back to the back door in the back door of the White House and takes him right into the Oval Office. And he says, Dad, there's someone here to see you. That's the privilege you have with God. You can go to this creator of the universe. You can march right into his office. And you can say, Father, I'm here to pray to you, to commune with you, and to be with you. And he won't turn you away. That is what it means to have God as your father. Now, Paul hasn't even gotten to the really controversial part yet. You see, there's such a thing called civil religion. That's the type of religion that society as a whole is okay with. We have that type of religion in America. It's the type of religion that allows us to talk about God. We can talk about God. You know, an actor can receive a, a, an Emmy and they can, they can say, I'll thank God for this award and no one gets up in arms. We can say things like, God bless America. Uh, we can say things like, in God we trust. And that doesn't really bother too many people. No one's really too upset about that. That's civil religion. But the thing that is absolutely intolerable to a lost and unbelieving world is the same thing that was intolerable in Paul's day. And that's when we bring Jesus into the conversation. It's one thing to talk about God. You, you take it a Further, when you affirm Jehovah as the only true and living God, 
the sharp point of the needle. The climax of this Christian confession occurs when we proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul goes on in verse 6, and he says, There is one Father, and then he says, And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice again what Paul is doing here. He says in verse 5, Many gods, many lords. Now in verse 6 he says, One God, one Lord. That is the antithesis of Christianity. The word translated Lord here, by the way, is the same word we find when the divine name in the Old Testament, the Tetragrammaton, is translated into the Greek. It's the Greek word Kyrios. Kyrios. And that was the divine name used for God in the Old Testament. And here it says Jesus is Kyrios. Jesus in a Kyrios. That tells us two things. Number one, it tells us that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is Jehovah. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal and everlasting God. Before Abraham was, He was. Should I say before Abraham was? I am. There is no was. There is no will be. He is the eternally existing one. It's not by accident that Paul says, Christ is the Kyrios, the Lord. But it tells us something else. It tells us that He is the absolute sovereign of the world. Jesus is Lord. No man can stay His decree. No man can thwart his purposes. No man can go against his ordination. Everything he decrees shall perfectly come to pass. He will execute everything that God has determined before to be done. He rules and he reigns in unbridled, unchallenged, unmitigated sovereignty over the world. We must uphold these two essential truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the high ground that we must defend. May we never waver at this point. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Lord of all. He is exclusively the way of salvation for all of mankind. Acts 4 and verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And then in Philippians 2 and verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, behold your God this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, came from heaven to earth, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, that He might redeem a people unto God, and now He sits at the right hand of the Father until the fullness of the time shall come in when He shall return to judge the earth in righteousness. And He will reign and rule in glory throughout all eternity. This is the God that we confess. This proclamation of Christ crushes all idols. And it puts an end to all idolatry. As we see this Jesus, we must ask, who shall be able to stand? All idols shall fall. Notice He goes on in verse 6 says that this Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Notice the careful distinction between God the Father and God the Son. All things are of the Father, but all things are by the Son. It was the Father who designed, orchestrated, and ordained all things, and it is the Son who executes the decrees of the Father. The Bible says that God the Father created the world by the Son. The Father ordains the plan of redemption. The Son secures the plan of redemption. Thus, this one God who subsists in three persons predestines and performs all things as He works in a blessed triunity to accomplish His own will. 
This is the Christian confession. This is who God is. Now you might ask, well, that's all wonderful, and I believe all of it, but what does any of that have to do with Christian liberty and eating meat sacrificed to idols? What does that have to do with that? Everything. Everything. Because the nature and person of God is not just a theological concept. God is not a religious category set off to the side. The person of God is the foundation and the centerpiece through which everything in the Christian life flows. And the implications of the one true and living God have implications for your life. So some may glance over verses 4 through 6 as just a basic premise to Paul's argument, but we must recognize this as an indispensable foundation. If we don't understand verses 4 to 6, we don't understand the implication. Paul roots his teaching in this whole section of 1 Corinthians upon who God is. And any time conflict arises, contention arises, troubles arise, we can take refuge in an immutable, unchanging God. So now we've seen who this God is. We've looked at the Christian confession, the mutual confession. Let us now look briefly at the implications in the remainder of this text in verses 7 and 8. I want you to see in verse 7 the mindful consideration. That was the mutual confession. Now we see the mindful consideration in verse 7. Paul says this. He says, How be it, there is not in every man that knowledge... At first glance, it may seem to us that Paul is referring to the mutual confession in verses 4 to 6. When he says, there is not in every man that knowledge, is he saying that not every man in the Corinthian church, not every member in the Corinthian church knows what he just stated in verses 4 to 6? Well, that that seems on the surface like it might be a plausible interpretation, but I'm going to suggest that there's something a bit deeper going on here. Firstly, because this confession is a basic foundation to true Christianity. You are fundamentally denying the faith if you deny this confession. So I don't believe there are members of the Corinthian church that would have theologically denied this. Secondly, because this rift in the Corinthian church has never just been about mere knowledge, I think Paul is saying something a bit deeper to us. These problems have never just been about what we know in our head, but it's about getting what we know in our head to align with the affections of our heart. Theology is never just theology. All theology has an ethical implication. It has a so what. I think I said last week, every doctrine, every theological truth, when we learn it, when the Lord reveals us to it, the very first question we should ask is, now that I know this in my head, how should I live this with my life? And sometimes we might agree on the theological principle and disagree on the so what. That's what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were disagreeing on the so what. The weaker brothers did not disagree theologically with this confession. They didn't abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols because they believed in the idols. They abstained because their conscience to the same theological, or their conclusion to the same theological truth was different than the conclusion of the stronger brother. That's why they abstain. Notice he goes on in verse 7. He says, For some with conscience of the idol, unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. They know theologically that idols are nothing. They know theologically that there is but one true God. They don't abstain because they believe in the validity of idols. They abstain because it goes against their conscience. So when Paul says here in verse 7, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, what he's saying is that not every man uses that knowledge the same way you do. It's the pride and the arrogance of the stronger brothers in saying, Well, what's taking them so long? Why don't they see it my way? Why don't they view it my way? Where we both believe the same truth, why don't they come to the same conclusion as us? They did not allow any space for their weaker brothers to have any liberty of conscience. That's the issue. We'll look more into the conscience next week, what it is, how it functions, etc. 
But let me just give you some important principles regarding the conscience of others. This is the mindful caution. Regarding the conscience of others, number one, God alone is Lord of the conscience. James 4 and verse 12 says, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? You must have a clean conscience before God. Not before your friends. Not before your church. Not before your pastor. Not before your government. You must have a clear conscience before God. Second principle. We must be very careful not to exalt our conscience to the level of Scripture. If you're violating the Word of God... If you're doing something that contradicts what God has said and written, then yes, I, I will come to you with a Bible in hand and I'll say, Sir, Madam, you are sitting and here's why. It's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about exalting our conscience to that same level. You're sitting. You, someone needs to come to you with a Bible and, and point out that sin to you and, and urge you to repent of your sin. But if you're just doing something that I don't like, and if I did it, it would be a sin because I can't do it with a clear conscience, but you can. And I have no right to come to you demanding that you change your behavior. Nor do I have any right to secretly think I'm better than you. That's the second principle. Do not exalt your conscience to the level of Scripture. Third principle, we must never seek to make the consciences of others conform to ours. Uh, That's really closely related with the second principle because it works both ways. If I have a personal conviction that affects how I live in a certain area of my life and I follow that conviction because I believe it honors God, I don't impose it on anyone, I don't preach it as something that you must do, I just do it because I believe it's the wise thing to do. It glorifies God and it pleases Him and I do it. And I live by that conviction. You have no right to come along and say to me, you know, you don't have to do that. You you ought not be such a stick in the mud. Don't you know we have liberty in Christ? The irony in saying something like that is that you are using Christian liberty to violate someone else's Christian liberty. That's precisely what was going on in the Corinthian church. You had some church members that said, look, we're not saying, we're not saying that it's, it's an unequivocal sin to partake of this meat offered to idols. What we're saying is that it would be sin if we did it because it violates our conscience. And we're going to abstain. And then you had stronger brothers that were coming along and they were saying, well, you know, you don't have to abstain. You know the idols are nothing. Yeah, we know the idols are nothing. It's not the point. The stronger brothers were tempting and enticing the weaker brothers to do something that was a violation of their conscience. And Paul will go so far as to say that when you do that, you're not only sinning against your brother, you're sinning against Christ. I knew a girl in college who had personal convictions about her dress and her attire. She dressed very conservatively and she dressed very modestly. And from time to time, she would experience the jarring and the conscience oppression from other students who would remind her, you know, you don't have to dress like that. College has rules and the college has a dress code, but... When we're doing extracurricular activities, you don't have to dress like that. But, brothers and sisters, you're not going to stand before God and have Him say, you know, you were just too modest on earth. You just cared too much about practical holiness and godliness and honoring God with your body. You just cared too much about that. You should have lived a little bit more lasciviously. 
enjoyed the the freedom to to do that. Paul knew the Corinthians would not go to heaven and hear God say, "You should have just ate the meat." If if God, if it was the will of God to partake of the meat, Paul wouldn't be addressing it like this. Why does Paul know this? Why does Paul know that that the Corinthians are not going to hear the Lord say to them on the last day, you should have just eaten the meat? Notice verse 8. I want you to see the the meaningless commendation. He says in verse 8, the meaningless commendation, but meat commendeth us not to God. Eat the meat, don't eat the meat. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you eat the meat. God doesn't care if you eat the meat. God cares with why or why not you eat the meat. Furthermore, He is ultimately concerned with how you treat and love your brother who comes to a different conclusion than you. He won't say, you should have just ate the meat. Or He won't say, uh, you should have abstained from the meat. But what He will say is you should have been more loving to your brother who didn't eat the meat or did eat the meat. That's what matters. See, that's, that's what, I think that's the heart of this text. That's what he's getting at here. Because he says in verse 8, For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. The Corinthians, like so many other times in this letter, the Corinthians, they, were, they had this thought in their mind that the problem in the church was, and usually, you know, they were so superficial. They were thinking, this problem is all external. Paul, imagine, imagine them writing to Paul. Paul, we're writing to you to tell you about some problems in the church. We've got that man that's sleeping with his father's wife. And, you know, we've got the people visiting the temple prostitutes. And then, you know, he gets to chapter 8. And he says, and we've got people in our church. The strong, of course, you know, the stronger brothers are writing this. We've got people in our church. They're abstaining from the meat offered to idols. And, you, you know, Paul, you need to write to them. And you need to talk to them about their Christian liberty to partake of the meat. And Paul said, that's not the issue. Eat the meat, don't eat the meat. Paul would say it doesn't matter whether you eat the meat. Here's the real issue. Are you loving and respecting those in the church who view it differently? Paul would say, you all believe idols are nothing, right? Yeah, we all believe that, Paul. You all believe there's only one God, right? Yes, Paul, of course we believe that. And Paul would say, then the issue... It's not your theology, but what you're doing with your theology. That's the issue. Look, if, if your brother abstains because of his former days of idolatry, many of the Corinthians were saved out of the idolatry, right? It's a very personal issue for them. If your brother abstains because of his former days of idolatry, and this meat is a violation of his conscience... Your job is not to be the Holy Spirit for him and convince him otherwise. Give him the liberty to obey his conscience. That is, that is what Christian liberty is. It's the liberty to obey your conscience. Christian liberty is not the liberty to live loosely or to live liberally or to live progressively and to, to push the boundaries of the Bible and to see what God has commanded and then see how close can I get to disobedience without actually disobeying and then calling that Christian liberty. That's not what Christian liberty is. Christian liberty is the liberty to obey your conscience and enjoy every minute of it without feeling compelled or pressured or constrained. Christian liberty is the liberty to say, I'm going to abstain from this meat and I'm not missing out. There's nothing within me feeling like, oh, I really should be eating the meat. No, no, I, I'm abstaining and I love it and I like abstaining. Christian liberty is the liberty for that girl in college to say, I'm going to dress the way I'm going to dress because I believe this pleases the Lord and I don't feel like I'm following some legalistic symbol or, or, or I'm not doing this to earn my salvation. I'm just doing this because I think it pleases God and that's my personal conviction and I enjoy following that conviction. That's Christian liberty. And it's also Christian liberty to have a different conviction that's in accordance with the Word of God. To say, I'm going to eat the meat and I'm going to cook it and it's going to taste real good and we're going to enjoy it and we're not going to sin when we do it. 
but you have to give your brothers and your sisters the liberty to obey their own conscience before God. You are not the Holy Spirit in their life. That's what Paul is saying. You know, someone recently remarked to me that for our size as a church, we have a lot of diversity. And what they meant by that is that our church membership doesn't look like it was formed with a cookie cutter. Uh, We have some non-negotiable things. I mean, when it comes to this book, this book is not up for debate. Even in the message today, we considered some areas in which we are absolutely dogmatic. We don't debate the deity of Christ around here and the doctrine of the Trinity and the eternal generation of the Son. And we, don't de- we don't debate those things. But there are also many domains in which the Lord has blessed us with great liberty. You, you can look around the room most days. and some, some, I mean, we're looking pretty good today, but, but you know, some days you might see a, a coat and tie, you might see a t-shirt. You might see a King James. You might see an ESV. You might meet a premillennialist. You might meet a postmillennialist. You might meet somebody that is southern as biscuits and gravy, or you might meet somebody from the West Coast. All of these different cultures and personalities and quirks and differences. I believe this diversity, which is a gift from God, which is a gift from God, believe that the reason why this diversity is so beautiful is that because in spite of it, we really love one another around here. That doesn't mean we don't have some friendly conversations about these things. And, you know, we, we, we'll argue for why we do the things we do. Your conviction, by the way, your conviction shouldn't be empty. If you have a conviction that you do because it pleases the Lord, but you can't argue for why it's a good thing, you, I mean, why are you doing it? And sometimes it's good when iron sharpens iron. As long as we love one another more than we love being right. And as long as I desire you to become more like Jesus and not more like me. And as long as I value you as my brother and sister more than I value you as my echo chamber. Then I believe we will continue to experience God's blessings upon us. Love and liberty. That, that's what Paul is addressing here. Love and liberty. May we seek to be a church that has both a proper relationship with one another. May the Lord give us that grace. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us this morning and delight to preach from the Word of God, to consider this non-negotiable confession of who our Lord is, that idols are nothing, that you, Father, are one God, Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, existing in the blessedness of your three persons. Yet, though we have these dogmatic truths which we dig our heels in the ground and affirm, we also have areas, Lord, in which we pray that you give us grace, that you give us love, to be patient, to be kind, to be understanding with one another, that we might glorify you. Father, we love you, we praise you, uh, we worship you in Jesus' name. Help us, help us. Amen.